Welcome to How Publishing Works, from Caxton to Kindle. Today I'm in conversation with Ellie Kerrin of the very large literary agency, United Agents. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Good to have you here. So let's start with the basics. How long have you worked in literary agencies? And how did you find yourself? How did you find yourself in that arm of publishing? Well, my my origin story is a slightly bizarre one because I actually trained in the sciences. Um, I did my first degree, my master's degree in chemistry. I spent a small amount of time as a research scientist. And then I decided to throw a stable career in the sciences to the wind to pursue a career in the arts instead. My family were thrilled. Um, I knew I wanted to be in publishing. I didn't really know where or how I wanted to be in books. And I also knew I wasn't competitive against people with English degrees and publishing degrees, worse of all. So I I didn't want to go back to undergraduate level. So I did a further master's degree in creative writing, which was a lovely course, which anyone can do regardless of whether they had a first degree in a relevant subject or any subject at all or not. There was an eclectic mix. There were some people straight out of English degrees. There was a couple of lawyers. There were some people who were ret- retired. It was a real mix. Um, but a couple of years later, I had a degree in the arts under my belt. There's another very large agency called Curtis Brown, who have an in-house creative writing school called Curtis Brown Creative. And I got my first job in publishing there. I was an intern. I was in their creative writing school, so I was using my creative writing degree, and it was more—it was closer to what I'd studied. But I was in-house at an agency, and I was learning about the publishing industry from the inside. And that's where I decided actually agency seemed very interesting, and if I could be anywhere, I'd like to be there. Um, I did six months or so at Curtis Brown, moved over to United Agents as an assistant. Um, That was seven years ago, and I'm happily still there now. I've moved up to the role of associate literary agent, which means I'm building my own list alongside working with a senior agent on her list and doing a lot of work for her. Um, And it's just a very exciting time for me in my career. Um, As well as being an associate literary agent, I've just been elected treasurer of the Association of Authors Agents, which is the industry body that sort of covers agents as a forum for us all to gather and talk and make sure we're on the same page um and i'm just sort of seeing where seeing where the river takes me okay well that's a pretty good start in seven years in the job that's you know that's a good long run so let's think about what an agent does from the author's perspective what is a literary agent if you have written a novel the most fantastic novel in the world guaranteed bestseller you still can't send it to the major, major publishers, the big five, or even a lot of the sort of more powerful indie publishers. They don't take unsolicited submissions. Um, We are the sort of first line of defense. You send your manuscript to a literary agent and the literary agent then brokers a deal for you. So one, we work with the authors and we work with the editors as a sort of go-between. On the author side, we take those submissions. We're the ones who can receive hundreds, thousands of submissions, and it's our job to go through them and find that talent. As with any agent role, part of it is talent scouting, discovering debuts, finding talent, and having enough of an understanding of the market to be able to read a manuscript and say, if I give this a bit of a polish, I think this will be a bestseller. 
I know where to place this. I know what kind of publishers will look at this. So from an author's point of view, we take those submissions, we edit, we polish up those manuscripts. And then on the other side of the table, we go to the editors and we submit the books. We get the publishing deals. We deal with the contracts. We do, we do a lot of the fiddly work so that authors don't have to. The division of labor, if you know, we don't expect authors... It wouldn't be a good use of time if every single author had to become an expert in copyright law and what a publishing contract looks like. Instead, I work with publishers across the global publishing scene and I know what to look for in a contract. So I do that work and I I negotiate a contract and send the author a contract saying, I've negotiated you this deal. Here's a contract I'm happy for you to sign. If you have any questions, let me know. And you, the author, never have to worry if you don't want to about understanding what any of it means. That's good because contracts can be extremely complex and there are some, some things in contracts must be there. So it's the agent's responsibility to... Once that contract is in place, if something goes wrong or the relationship becomes complicated, we protect those contracts, we step in. It it would be my job to say, hey, let's extricate ourselves from this situation or let's solve this problem from a contractual and legal point of view. So again, even once the contract is signed, I'm not hands off about it. My job is to continue to protect my author's interests Um, hopefully on the same side of the publisher, but occasionally if conflict arises to represent their author's interests um, and be their advocate, be their representative. Yeah. So what about from the publisher's perspective? What good are agents? Because there's a well-known saying in the trade that a literary agent exists to get in the way of a publisher and their and their author well i mean sometimes i get in the way with of the publisher if the publisher is trying to do something untoward the uh, the advance and royalty system means a lot of the time all our um all our aims are aligned we all want the book to sell as many copies as possible and make as much money and be a commercial success but sometimes the um the aims of the publisher and the aims of the author don't align it might be that the publisher doesn't want to give the author as much as a, a cut as they want or the publisher wants to go with a title or a cover that the author doesn't like or some other issue might arise it might be that the author has a contractual um delivery date that they don't think they're going to be able to hit so sometimes we do come into conflict with the publisher and we say um you know, we need to solve this situation. We need you to be giving more favorable rates to our authors or we're going to take them elsewhere. We need you to allow the author more time to write this manuscript or this entire process is going to break down. Um, But another part of the process is that that initial wave of submissions. Publishers are incredibly busy. We want them to be busy publishing the best books they can publish and selling as many copies as they can. And finding new books to publish is such a time-consuming job Um, they leave that to us. And in fact, um, there are publishers I know whom if they do find an author who's writing a book that they'd like to work on, who um, doesn't have an agent, they'll send them my way. And I've um, I've had authors come my way on recommendation from publishers who said, I want to do a deal with this author. They should be protected. Their interest, they should have someone representing their interests who understands. Um, so I'd like you to consider representing them before I do a book deal with them. So we are normally all aligned. And a lot of the time the publishers do prefer working with um, authors who have agents. Yeah. But ultimately it seems like the agent is always on the author's side. 
Yes, always on the author's side. And as much as possible, I would like that to align with the publisher's side. And as much of the process as possible, we're all on the same side. Author, agent, publisher, we all sit around the table and all of us want the same things. And on those rare occasions when conflict arises, we are very firmly in the author's corner. Okay, that's that's good to know. So on your page, on your website for United Agents, you give very clear instructions about how and what authors should approach you if they want their work to be considered. So can you talk us through the requirements that you have? Uh, do you mean in terms of what to submit or what genres I work with? Both. Both. I work in both fiction and non-fiction. I focus on non-fiction. With my scientific background, my sort of niche in the market is... Um, smart science nonfiction. I do cultural history. I do issues-led books. Um, books that do good in the world is really what I'm looking for. And then I also do some fiction to sort of keep myself sane a bit, some commercial and some weird experimental fiction, and a little bit towards the literary side of the industry, but mostly in the commercial. Now, can we stop there? I've heard this a lot. We have trade publishing, we have commercial publishing, we have literary publishing, and different people in the business differentiate between those three categories so can you explain to the non-publishing professional what is literary what is commercial and what is trade so i understand it slightly differently in that there's the academic trade binary and there's the commercial literary binary and of course neither are binaries they're both continuum but um the more academic side of publishing and then the trade side and here the word co commercial can be conflated because I'd say there's academic versus commercial publishing. And in that sense, commercial and trade for me mean the same thing. And those are general audience books, books that you pick up off the shelf at Waterstones, as opposed to um, academic books, niche subjects, um, books you're more likely to find in a university library um, or be required reading on a um, course books that, books that aren't going to sell a million copies and be a Sunday Times bestseller, but are doing a very specific job. But then you've also got the commercial literary divide. And here commercial means something different because these are the two ends of what I'd call trade publishing, which you may also call commercial publishing. So these are books that you will pick up off the shelf at Waterstones. But you've got at one end of the industry, you've got very commercial literature. I mean, it's very difficult to describe. But for me, these are books that focus on plot. They are often quick reading and... Um, most of your crime thrillers, your romance, your general fiction will fall in here. And then at the other end, you've got literary fiction, which are generally books that are doing or achieving something over and above the story they're telling. Um, here, you're probably going to find your Booker Prize winners, um, books that ask and don't necessarily answer big question. Books like um, The Sense of an Ending, Midnight's Children, books with issues at their heart. That's, they're still fiction. They still tell a story. But the point of the book is not necessarily the story. The point is not, how does this story end? Who done the murder? You know, the point is something else you're going to get from it. Okay, that's pretty clear. So going back to what submissions you you, you have, you've already outlined the, the kind of genres that you prefer to work in. And presumably if somebody pitched you a cookbook, you'd kindly hand it on to a colleague yes. who worked with cookbooks. But what about the, the, the practical material aspects? What do you want in your inbox? Like a lot of agents at United Agents, our policy is to ask for a cover letter, the first three chapters and a one page synopsis. Some agencies ask for slightly different things and some agencies actually agents within that agency 
will have slightly different requirements so it's worth checking an agency submission page and the agent profile i'm very sorry it's not an easier system um sometimes it might be the first 10,000 words or the first 30 pages but the most common request is cover letter three chapters um synopsis the cover letter occasionally people will send me a cover letter as an attachment i'll receive an email saying please see my cover letter attached with three attachments that's just an extra layer just put your cover letter in the body of the email um the cover letter is my introduction to you i want you to tell me what you've written what the genre is what the word count is who you're writing it for give me a, a paragraph or so of blurb a long line to get me interested something that would make me pick it up off a shelf something like the blurb you'll see on the back of a paperback when you walk into a bookshop something that makes me say oh that's interesting i quite like to read that um, and any other information that might be relevant that might sway me have you been published before have you been agented before have you won um short story prizes you know anything that that will make you seem like a, a more pr- attractive prospective client and presumably a client whose book might sell well i mean every author thinks their book's going to sell that's sort of what my job is to tell you if i think your book's going to sell you just focus you the author focus on writing the best book you can write um but you don't need to tell me that you think it's going to be a bestseller no 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 that's, that's that seems clear so what are the warning signs that make you think, oh, this may not be the right submission for me to look at? If it's very clear that you're sending out a mass submission to many, many agents, um, then it might... it, it might not be something I pay too much attention to. The warning signs there are something that isn't addressed to me. I know it's a small thing, but if it says, hello, I've written a book, and the, you know, all the... Um, all the agents are BCC'd in or sometimes just copied in and I can see every agent you're sending it to. That's generally not how this works. We'd like you to think about this, treat it the same way you might treat a job application. You want to be targeted and specific. If it's clear that you haven't read my page on the profile because you're sending me a children's novel or something else that's just wildly outside my remit, it's going to be easy for me to turn that down. But then within the books I do work with, it's hard to say exactly what, what the major red flags would be. Most of the time when I turn a book down, it's because I receive a lot of fiction submissions and I don't take on much fiction. I receive many more fiction submissions than I do nonfiction. Um, I think everyone does. And I'm incredibly selective with the fiction I take on because I take on so little of it. And if I'm reading a book... And I, I turn down a lot of good books because they they're just... Okay, here's the thing. No, I found it. I found my answer to this question. Um, Every time I receive a submission, I am balancing two things in my mind. I'm balancing how much time I think I'm going to have to spend on this submission and how much money I think this is going to earn for myself and the author. Because ultimately, this is a business. I love working in the arts and I love being creative, but this is my job and I have overheads. And my job is to make money for the author as well as cover my own overheads. So there's a ratio there. There's a ratio of um, return on investment of time. If you send me an absolutely sparkling, polished, wonderful work of niche experimental literary fiction that I think I'm going to have to do the lightest edit on and then can sell for a very small deal, there's a good chance I'll take that on because it's a very low return on investment, but very low investment on time. And I love getting weird experimental literary books out in the world. If you send me a 
complete commercial banger that is going to rock the commercial literature world and is the most amazing, say, a, who, a closed box whodunit. I love a lockbox whodunit that I think is going to take a lot of work. Like, I am going to have to do redraft after redraft of this. There's a good chance I'm going to take that on because I will put in a lot of time, but I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a lot back from it. It's the ones that fall in the middle. If you send me a very niche experimental literary book that I think I'm going to have to do eight layers of edit on, I don't have time to do eight edits on a book that I'm going to sell for a grand and a half. And if you send me a... Um, I mean, actually, on the other end is a wonderfully well-polished commercial book. I'm going to take that on too. If I, if I don't have to do a huge amount of edits on it and I can sell it a lot of money, no, that's a book I'm definitely going to take on. Because it's also worth bearing in mind that... As an agent, I don't charge a fee, and no reputable agent earns a fee. Um, the Association of Authors Agents represents or is a forum for agencies, and you can only be a member if you don't charge a reading fee. That's not how our industry is meant to work. We earn commission. We earn a percentage of commission, which means I, as an agent, don't earn a penny until my clients do. So every time I take a book on, until I make a book deal, I'm working on spec. I'm working for free. The edits I do and the time I spend sitting down with the author, brainstorming, plot ideas, structural edits, line edits, polishing to make it as enticing a prospect for a publisher as possible. I'm doing that on the hope, on the faith that I'm going to earn some money and that the author is going to earn some money. The nice thing about being an agent is that I don't need to ask anyone's permission to do it. I don't really have much oversight. If someone sends me a book, unlike an editor, if someone sends me a book that is weird and wonderful and I think I can make a success of it, I can take that on. An editor at a publishing house has to convince marketing, publicity, sales, the rest of the editorial team. They have to take a book to an acquisitions meeting. They have to make its case. And they sometimes have to fight an uphill battle to get that publisher to take a business risk on it. I don't have to do any of that. All the risks I take on my own. But the flip side of that is that my company gives me that freedom and allows me to take on whatever weird and wonderful books I want as long as I am then doing those deals. So every time I take on a weird experimental literary fiction i i have to back myself and i have to i have to come through i have to sell that book i have to convince someone to take it to acquisitions and to get sales and marketing on board i have to get someone else to convince their publisher that this is a worthy business investment that this is a worthy business risk and i love the artistic side but as i as i always say this is a business the publisher's Higher up, see this as a business. The editors might see it as an artistic pursuit, especially in the literary side, but they still have to make a business case for it. Oh, yes. It does. I had not thought before that an agent is really a salesperson, um, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. So when you've got a, a promising author uh, with a good submission, um, do you initially think about how can I develop this, this client's career or do you focus on the text at hand? It's always... It's always a bit of both. I'm an early career agent, which means I'm looking to pursue long-term relationships. I'm looking for authors who I think I can work with for multiple books. But I also work in nonfiction, and sometimes, sometimes an author has one area of expertise and one book in them, and that's going to be a very worthy book. And it might be a lot of the time the sort of thing I work on is when an, 
um, a writer has written a PhD on a very worthy, very interesting topic, and it's very dry and very academic, and they've done good, interesting, potentially world-changing work that's going to sit on an academic shelf somewhere because no one in Waterstones is going to pick up your PhD thesis. And what I do is I work with them to take their ideas and take their research and their inspiration and put it in a format that someone will sit down on a train, open their bag and not pick up Netflix on their phone. They're going to open this book instead. That's my goal. That's what I'm always telling my authors, that you are competing with, <laughs> with you know, Netflix and video can- Candy Crush and whatever it might be. I don't know still people's still play Candy Crush. But sometimes there's only one book in it for an author. Sometimes they do their, or sometimes two, you know, their research and then something else they really wanted to write about. But often these are people who have a real talent for writing and really interesting ideas and do want to become career fiction or nonfiction writers. And I'm I'm not going, it won't preclude anyone from becoming a client of mine if they think they've got one stellar knockout book in them and no more. But I, I love to work with people long term and see their, their careers thrive, especially in, a, um, in parts of the industry where often, you know, sometimes people write four or five books before they have their, their breakout hit, the book that makes them a household name. And if I love someone's writing and have a lot of faith in them as an artist, I, I want to keep I want to keep plugging away. I want to keep sending those small books into oblivion until that one book takes off and does what I need to do to make them a household name. And that is the kind of thing that gives struggling authors hope that somebody somewhere is still on their side, even though the editors are not buying the books. What do you not do as an agent? Obviously, you take care of their writing, but what do you? Where, where are the lines? I don't offer tax advice, which is the first thing my legal team tell me often we don't offer tax advice we don't offer legal advice but i'm a literary agent i work with i sell english language rights in our books to uk publishers generally um we have a lot of other agents in house at united agents so i don't do um film tv screen stage adaptation because at united agents we've got a book to film department so if someone emails me and says, hey, I'd like to turn this book into a film, I say, cool, talk to these guys in the other office who know way more about that than I do. I don't sell translation rights. My clients write books in English. I sell them to English language publishers. And then our in-house translation department sell those rights on to foreign language publishers and get foreign language deals. I also don't work with other formats. So I don't work with film scripts. I don't work with stage plays. I don't work with um, poetry. There, There are agents who do but that's a slightly different part of the industry. I don't work with actors. United Agents is famous for being an actor's agency. We have a huge um, roster of really world-brand, world-class acting talent. And it's what we're probably most famous for overall in the entertainment industry. Um, And a lot of people don't realise a lot of actors. I get a lot of people submitting to me for acting representation and they send me their acting CVs and headshots and say, I love what you do and I'd love the chance to work with you. Do you want to come see me in this play? And I'm like, not really. I'm really sorry, but I don't think you do love what I do. I think you just, you like the idea of being represented by United Agents and you've probably sent this email to everyone in every department. <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense. However, so once you've developed your working relationship with a new client, with new clients, at the same time, you've got your backlist, which is probably not the right phrase. It's the existing clients whose books you have sold in the past seven years. Are you still working on those properties? And I also, once the book is sold, 
that's when I also step back. So I do edit, I edit manuscripts before I've sold them. And then once I've sold them to an editor, I step back. I don't do marketing. I don't do publicity. I get involved. I will make sure a publishing house is doing what I want them to be doing. I might call up a publicist and say, hey, 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 when you were acquiring this book, you told us you were going to do a lot of stuff. Let me see you doing the stuff. You know, having those awkward conversations so that the author doesn't have to and protecting the author's relationship with the publisher. But that's, that's not my job. My job is to oversee and make sure the process is going smoothly. But I'm a big believer in letting people do what they're good at. And I'm not good at publicity and marketing. I'm good at selling the rights to books. It's part of your role to jolly an author along. Say if an author has been absolutely silent for five years, apart from Christmas cards, do you actively say, how are you doing? How's the next book? Or do you just wait for them to get in touch with you? Yes. So I'm working with them. Lots of those writers are writing their next book and I'll get them under contract, sometimes a one, sometimes a two book contract out of a two book contract writing their third book. You know, I'm thinking, am I going to, are we going to go back to the same publishing house? Are we going to move them somewhere else? Are we going to, are they writing in a slightly different area? Do they, would they like their next book? You know, maybe their first book or two were more literary. Now they're writing something more commercial. I have to have some conversations. You know, I have to let an editor down and say, I know you've loved working with this author, but I'm going to take them to a publishing house that does what they're doing now, as opposed to what they've been doing for years. But I also, we collect um, royalty statements. We deal with the money. That's another big part of what we do we receive royalty statements which are often very complicated and fairly inaccessible again even to me i've got an in-house royalties department they do most of the work on the royalties but we receive royalty statements we invoice for the payments due we go over them with a fine tooth comb to make sure everything's in order you know if a publisher is saying that they're doing this special sales deal and then i get a royalty statement and the special sales deal isn't listed it's my job to get in touch and say hey we were expecting an extra however many hundred thousand pounds on this um royalty state that's hundred or thousand pounds not not hundred thousand pounds um on this royalty statement where is it or you know these these two books were separately accounted and you're treating them as joint accounted these aren't the kind of things i expect an author to be able to glance at their royalty statement and spot these issues so we continue to look after the books from a financial point of view we continue to look for opportunities to um sell those rights we're we're again doing those film and foreign deals for our backlist all the time um a book does have a lifetime a lot of the time and there are books that are published and they have their day in the sun and then they become backlist and it's not always a kind term but in those cases there's a limit to what i can do for that book and my main priority is um doing what i can for it but focusing on the author the author's continuing career and making sure their next book has a longer brighter day in the sun You've got a couple of literary estates on your books as well as live authors. So what difference is there between administering the the, the, the properties, the books written by an author who is now dead, as compared to a live author who is still producing? Often I'm content to let an author work at their pace, unless we've got contractual um, delivery dates and there are things I need an author to do. Um, I am happy to let an author come to me and let me know what it is they want to do next. I'm, I'm there for them as and when they need me. When it comes to deceased authors, it is, of course, all about the backlist. We're not, we don't have a new exciting book coming up on the horizon to hook the backlist onto. If I've got an author, a living author with a large backlist, when they have their next major publication, I can say, hey, if you love this new book, check out these eight they wrote 10 years ago. I can't do that. I don't have something big and flashy with the estates I work with. So it's a very different kind of um, opportunities that I'm on the lookout for. 
um, its cla- its classics lists and um, revivals, and is there a big anniversary coming up? You know, if it's a a, a classic book that's fallen somewhat out of the public consciousness, but in two years' time, we're coming up to the centenary of its original publication. Great. I'm going to be looking to see if I can get someone excited about that. If it's a book that's long out of print, um, can I find someone who wants to revive it and do a new edition and maybe a new forward by an interesting person who is in the in the current consciousness and can breathe new life into it? Um we talk a lot. There are there are agents who specialize in estates. Um, I don't. I I represent three estates, and the rest of my work is um, with living authors. And of the three estates I represent, two of them are fairly inactive. One of them is the estate of an author who wrote one book that is out of copyright in most parts of the world. So there are a few territories where I continue to do deals and receive royalties. Um, but outside of those territories, anyone can now do their own edition of that book and. I have very little control um, that that works in the public domain and soon it will be in the public domain worldwide, at which point um, I will represent the estate's best interest as best I can. But the extent to which I can, I can do work for them and convince people to pay us for work that's in the public domain is limited. The best way to do that is to attach new material to it, um, a new forward, something like that. Is it not the case that if unpublished work came to light, for example, an unpublished novel, then because it's not been published, it's still in copyright. And therefore, you would have the opportunity to handle that. I'm not 100% sure on the, the minutia of copyright law in that particular case. That's something, if a, if a um, previously unknown and unpublished work did come to light, then that is the first question I would also be asking. I, my understand, yeah, that's how we operate for, certainly for short stories, because we've published a couple of short stories that had not been published before, and we had to go searching for the copyright and we get, get the permission, and that, that was all quite straightforward. But it was an interesting wrinkle in copyright dealing. One of the authors that we have published, you handled, and my impression was that our approach came as a bit of a surprise to you because almost immediately you had to go and check out were the rights available. And then the publisher that had hitherto had those rights and had done nothing with them for a long time decided, oh, no, no, we want everything. That was quite a tussle, wasn't it? My impression was. It's interesting when things happen all at once like that. But yeah, that is effectively what happened. Um, you approached me and said, hey, we'd like to do a new issue of these books, at which point, as with any agent working with the States, my job is to, my first job is to find out where those rights are. Are they available? Can I sell them? Um, is there going to be a clash of copyright here? Um, and I actually did the this particular author's previous publisher um did then um, renew their interest in the rights of a number of other titles by that publisher. And we just extricated the few that you wanted to work with because you were doing a nice sort of bespoke new edition, a sort of breathing new life into a classic. Um, Whereas they were more, they had a lot of titles by this author and they were going to continue making them available, but they weren't going to make new editions of them. Um, And I felt that it was in the estate's best interest to split those rights up and let you have some and let them have others. Um, but it is always an interesting case um, when someone approaches me. And I, I normally have approaches about film and TV rights, but it is um, a rare treat when someone gets in touch with me and says, hey, we'd love to do a new edition of this backlist or out-of-print um, work that you represent. Good. 
Well, I'm glad I brought some joy into your day, that, that inquiry. <laughs> so going back to live authors, what would a troublesome client do? What kind of things really cause you headaches? Um, there are the sort of there are very mildly troublesome things which are unavoidable, like when an author um, becomes overly ambitious with their delivery date and says, no, I think I can write this book in a year. I think I can write this book in a year. And it's very clearly a two and a half year project. Um, and we have to do some work moving delivery dates, moving things around. Social media is a big one. When we represent an author, it's easy for us to get caught up in anything they might do or say. And, you know, people will expect statements via us. Um, and we have to think carefully about who we represent and what that says about us. And we don't, as a company, um, impose values on anyone. But at the same time, we are aware that our values reflect on our clients and our clients' values reflect on us. And we need to stay um, cordial on social media. And occasionally we have to stay neutral on social media. There are things that I'm not supposed to wade in on. Um, I'm not going to go around being rude to people on Twitter like I did when I was an upstart teenager um, as much as I'd like to. Um, because that would reflect badly on my clients. And on the flip side, I would like my clients not to be rude to people on Twitter because that would reflect badly on me. Yeah, I, the, the, the general sort of behaviours that you wouldn't you wouldn't expect in a professional context because we do work at the sort of intersection between personal and professional and our authors pour a lot of themselves into their books and their personalities and sometimes their personality is part of the brand in a way that you wouldn't expect from an office job. Um. And that sometimes makes things difficult with the very big and loud personalities. Um, I, I never want to tell an author not to be themselves. Um, I just have to think very carefully about the kind of selves I want to attach my name to. <laughs> and the selves you would like them to encourage in public, if you could, mm. if you had the influence. I'm remembering of work I did in archives where um, John Buchan, the author John Buchan, who I've done a lot of work on, he was also a publisher. And he's his letters complaining bitterly about what H.D. Wells had said recently. And God, that man is awful. And also complaining about another writer called E.C. Bentley selling on rights, foreign rights, willy nilly, without actually mentioning them to Nelson's, his publishers. So Buchan had to sort of charge in and try and retrieve those rights because they'd actually been sold three times over and they shouldn't have been. But I suppose that doesn't happen now. Authors have no, no chance to sell rights, so they can't mess up things in that way. It would be unlikely if someone approached an author directly and said, we'd like to buy the rights of this book, the author would be very unlikely to turn around and say, yeah, sure, give me some money. They'd probably say, "I this is not my remit. I, I'll let my, my agent handle it. There are, there'll be, there might be things that an author just won't think of. For example, an author might enter a short story competition and click I accept these terms and conditions without really reading them and then send me an email saying, hey, I won a short story competition. And it's the first time hearing about it. And I'll say, okay, did you, would you, can I take a look at the terms and conditions of that short story competition? And when I read them, it says any story submitting, submitted for this short story um, competition, all the rights are now owned by the people running the competition and they own the copyright, whether you win or not. And I'll say to that author, look, I'm really glad you've won, but there's absolutely nothing I can do with this story. And they can now publish you in any language, in any territory, in any adaptation and use your name without giving you anything more than the £150 prize money. You know, they now own all the rights in this story and there's absolutely nothing I can do about that. So if they end up turning it into a Netflix movie and making a lot of money off it, 
I hope you enjoy that 150 pounds. <laughs> that is a, yeah, that's an awful warning with a capital A. Yeah, and and it might be that we, if we, if the, that author had run it by me at the time, I would have looked at the terms and conditions, and all I'd have said was, "Look, I just want you to be aware that if you submit to this, we cannot use that short story for anything else. They will own the right. You are welcome to do it. I'm not going to tell you not to, but please don't do it with a short story that you would like to use in a collection down the line, or something that you've promised to anyone." Now that leads to the question: Can an author alter a short story sufficiently? to make it a different text that could be used with a completely new set of rights? It depends how successful that short story was for the people who originally bought it. Because if it wins a short story competition and is published in a magazine, and by the time the magazine's next issue is published, no one's talking about it, they're probably not going to cause much of a fuss. But if that short story garners a huge amount of attention and everyone starts wanting to publish it in translation or talk about adaptation, and then the author goes and tries to adapt it and writes a very similar short story and place the right somewhere else, we might be in trouble. But ultimately, it's my job to look at the specifics of the wording of the contract and the terms of the and conditions and the specifics of the wording of the story and its adapted form and make a call and say, actually, no, in my professional opinion, this would still be covered by the original copyright clause. And if you do want to write a similar short story, it needs to be similar, but a different short story rather than an adaptation of the one you have written. Yeah, that, that makes yes, there's, there's lots of things at play there. It's not just rights, it's editorial and qualitative ju judgments as well. Sometimes it's not clear cut. Sometimes there are um, grey areas. Mm. Um, one of the greyest areas in copyright law is the concept of fair use and what constitutes fair use. Um, and I think a lot of people who work in publishing and listening to this podcast probably just clenched every muscle in their abdomen um, because it might be that what I consider fair use, someone else doesn't or vice versa. And someone's gone and said, hey, I've published something by your... Um, client in my book, I consider it fair use. And I'll turn around and say, okay, but I'm not sure a page and a half is fair use. Maybe if you'd used a paragraph or a sentence or two, that's fair use. But there is ultimately no um, no hard and fast rule about what is fair use. And we might get into, at that point, we might need to start asking ourselves, what, what are we going to get from this fight? And what are we going to have to put into it? Again, it's return on investment. How much of my or my client or my legal team's time am I going to need to invest in this fight? And what is the return going to be? Going back to um, the selling of rights and selling of authors, I've been interested. Headlines in the trade press, which is mainly the bookseller, when they report that a new author or a book has been signed up, they use quite arresting language. For example, scoops, snaps up, lands, wins as well as the more sedate terms of secures, acquires, signs, and goes to. And the most honest one is buys. So a lot of this is journalistic desperation, trying to make the language exciting to get people to read the story of a business transaction. How exciting does an acquisition get? Oh, it can get very, very exciting. Um, so I warn my authors when I'm about to go on submission with one of their books, especially if they're a debut author and it's the first time going out on submission, they don't really know what to expect from this process. Um, so I tell them, in my experience, it's going to go in one of three directions. Um, worst case scenario, no one's going to buy it. I'm going to send it out to a whole bunch of editors and I'm going to get lots of different people saying they loved it, but, or not saying anything at all. In that case, I am going to do one of two things. I'm going to collate that feedback that we do get from the editors turning it down. 
if a pattern emerges, if I send it to 16 editors, 10 of them get back to me with feedback and eight of them give me the same feedback and say, I really like this, but it was just a bit too academic. Then I turn to the author and say, okay, this is too academic. We're going to do a redraft. If they give me feedback and it's there, there's no common thread, I might say to the author, look, it's been turned down across the board in my initial submission, but there's no clear reason for it. And I still have faith in the project. I'm going to go out on another submission. Bear with me. That's the least exciting thing that might happen. The middle route is maybe one or two um, publishers are interested and I have a couple of meetings and I, I see where the best place to place this book is. And maybe I get one offer on the book or maybe I get two for the author to pick between and try and get them th- those offers as, as favorable as possible. It's not big, it's not flashy, but the book gets published. And normally if I get one offer on a book, most of the time it's the publisher who I would most have wanted to sell that book to and the editor who I thought this book most suits. Um, it's very rare that I have one or two or three offers on the table and there's not an offer I'm happy to recommend my client takes but maybe it won't go for the kind of the kind of scale of numbers the kind of figures that you see in those big flash announcements but the third route the one that we always want is we send it out to 15 16 publishers and 10 11 12 of them want to make an offer on it and that's when it gets exciting that's when we we run an auction and we whip people up and we build that buzz and our aim as agents in that scenario is both to find the perfect home for the book but also find the most favorable terms i'm talking the best royalty rates the most rights extricated the um the highest advance and it and i can talk about what i mean when i talk about extricating extricating extracting rights and 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 winding up that advance and what an advance is for an author as opposed to a fee um but ultimately it's about getting the best deal and finding the perfect home. And we, at, at, there are times when we have publishers jumping through hoops and they will, they will do a song and dance. They will get the whole team together. They will bring the author in to wow them with their offices and put together presentations and cover design to talk us through the most amazing publicity campaigns that they're going to run for this book. And the author can say, oh, okay, okay, you're saying this. Well, I went to a publisher yesterday and they, had, they also had an amazing publicity campaign. So, you know, what are you going to give me? That's when it's when everyone's passionate and everyone's excited and everyone is in love with the book and the author feels like the most important person in the world. Um, and everyone is convinced that this is going to fly off the shelves. It's it's fun. It's exciting. It's fast paced. That's another thing I like about it. If I've got one or two um, editors offering on a book and a whole bunch who are still undecided. I'm trying to, you know, I'm saying, okay, I've got offers on the table now, so I'm, I'm going to need you to get back to me within the next week or two. But sometimes these things take a long time. If I've got eight or nine editors offering on a book and a few still undecided, I can say, look, get back to me by tomorrow because I've got enough offers. I don't need more. So if you want to be in the running for this, do it now. And occasionally we get preempts. Occasionally I'll send a book out to a whole bunch of editors and say, hey, I'd like to hear from you within the next week or two. Here it is. And the next morning I get into work and there's an email there saying, here's a huge sum of money for you to take it off the table now. This this offer expires at the end of the working day today. But if you and th- these are the rights we'll be taking and here is the money we're offering. This is a one time offer. And I want it and, and I want I want all these rights today. And at that point, we have to ask ourselves, OK, do we take the preempt? Or do we think we can get a better deal if we hold out? Because if they're preempting it... Oh, my God. It's like gambling. It it is a bit. If they're preempting it, if they love it that much, and we say, no, we're going to turn the preempt down, 
and go to an auction, they're going to lowball us, but they're going to be interested. They're going to want that book. And I have an idea of how much they want it for. But if I turn down a 24 hour preempt and then no one else offers on the book, then I've got a lowball offer I have to take. Gosh, that, that, yes, is a lot more exciting than I had thought. I mean, I read the trade press and I go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just assumed this is talked up, but of course it's not. Well, that was great. Thanks so much, Ellie. Um, that was a really interesting conversation. I think we could talk a lot more um, and it's possible we'll get you back in a future series, future episode, who knows. But thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. I hope it was useful and informative. And if anyone wants to know more about who I am and what I do, Ellie Karen United Agents. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Bye. 